0: It's Tuesday, February the 15th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is The Guy Benson Show. Very glad to have you here. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening every day, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. And around the clock on the podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. Many ways to listen live or to catch the No Charge On Demand podcast if you can't. On today's show, we'll get to our first guest here in just a moment. Later, Senator Marshall Blackburn, Republican of Tennessee, will join us. Josh Krasauer as well, of National Journal and a Fox News Radio political analyst. That is all yet to come on the program. Fox News alert as we get going. Stats, 77.8 million all-in cases confirmed of COVID in the United States, a huge underestimate of the true number, but cases in the United States have fallen now by 66%. Over the last two weeks, the death toll is up in the United States, people dying with or of COVID over the last two years, 920,959. The death rate or the death toll dropping as a percentage, however, in these last two weeks by 6%. The Dow is currently up today. There's a lot of, I think, international concern about what's happening in Ukraine and on that border with Russia. But there are some potential positive signs that maybe a war and an invasion is not imminent. So the Dow is currently up 402 points at this hour to 34,968. That despite some really bad news on inflation that we will mention coming up later on this hour. Joining me now right at the top to talk about the situation in Ukraine is General Jack Keene, retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, and Fox News senior strategic analyst. General, it is good to have you back here.
4: Yeah, delighted to be here, Guy. Thank you.
0: All right, so based on what I'm seeing and reading, it would appear that there are some mixed signals today. On one hand, you have reports that the U.S. and NATO have agreed to discuss a range of what they're calling security measures – That Russia has proposed so it looks like maybe diplomacy is back underway and this notion of a highly anticipated potential invasion as soon as tomorrow uh, that might be premature or maybe this thing is going on a diplomatic off-ramp there have been reports that Russia has pulled back some of its troops that were staging by the Ukrainian border but I've also seen reports that there are other Indications based on our intelligence that Russia is doing other provocative things right now that would suggest that they are very much still planning to invade. And there are also reports of hack attacks. So a denial of service attacks and that sort of thing against institutions in Ukraine, including banks and the Ukrainian government that could be interpreted as a precursor to invasion or war. What is your read on where things stand right now as we come on the air and as we await President Biden's comments later this hour?
4: Yeah, well, I, I do think uh, uh, there is a diplomatic pathway that cert- certainly uh, Putin is willing to pr- proceed. We started to see that uh, yesterday as a result of the staged uh, TV uh, performance between the foreign minister and Putin. It's kind of bizarre, him reporting to him like he normally would do, but doing it on state television. And they opened up uh, the realistic fact that uh, not all diplomacy has been exhausted, and the, um, Putin, President Putin agreed with that. We have Putin today also uh, offering a diplomatic pathway forward as a result of his meeting with uh, Chancellor Schultz. So I I think uh, while we always have to be skeptical about the motivation here, and given the history of uh, Putin, um, it it appears that there, at least for the near term, a pathway forward uh, diplomatically uh, is ongoing. Whether that turns into uh, a realistic uh, cessation of this kind of aggression on Ukraine's border only remains to be seen we also have to have a healthy dose of skepticism right uh, about about all of that cyber attacks are underway um we don't know how comprehensive they are yet uh we do know the defense ministry has been hit and some form of the banking industry and we we do know that cyber attacks uh are either a prelude to uh an invasion or a military operation, or at a minimum, at least a complementary to it. Um, so, yeah, that's where we are. The movement of the troops... The well, hold Pentagon on. Let me, can I, let me
0: just ask you this but before you make that point, because I listened very carefully to what you were just saying, and I hope you're right. And I hope that maybe this is the Russians blinking and saying, okay, do we really want to do this? Do we want to incur these casualties? Do we want to bring down the condemnation of the world on our heads? Do we want to have all these sanctions hit us and probably hit us pretty hard? Is it worth it? You know, Maybe they're making the calculation that you know rattling the saber was enough and perhaps they can get a few concessions here or there and they can step back from the brink. Maybe, right? That is something that we can all be hopeful for. And we'll be monitoring President Biden at the bottom of the hour. He's supposed to speak. Not sure if he will bring any new news necessarily to the table, but uh, we'll be watching that here just if anything significant happens. But I have to ask you, General, just listening to that answer and thinking about the Russians, I don't trust them at all. That dog and pony show that you mentioned on state television was very bizarre and – Tell me – maybe this is a completely crazy thought that I had, but one place that my brain went was it was widely reported in the last, what, 24-plus hours that the Russians were likely to invade. You know, it could very much happen even this week during the Olympics. It could even happen specifically on Wednesday. That word went out. Could it be that the Russians had a plan in place to do exactly that, felt almost like they were getting preempted or scooped by the West – And now they are sort of engaged in a head fake to make it seem like they're not necessarily going to do this imminently when, in fact, that is their plan. And they want people to now take their eye off the ball and look elsewhere and maybe assume that diplomacy is underway so that they can then regain at least some element of surprise with an attack that they already had planned. I mean, is that conspiratorial of me? I just don't trust them at all.
4: No, I think uh, basic premise, not to trust him, is pretty damn sound. I mean, we can. I mean, we've got a a thug and a killer and a bold-faced liar running this country. Uh, So, yeah, we've got a lot of history with him for 20 years. And uh, certainly uh, his veracity is is that that's already established. He's lacking it. But uh, some facts, though. I mean, the... Our government and I know from talking to senior Pentagon officials, they never said there was going to be an attack on Wednesday. That came out of a German, a uh, uh, German newspaper, Der Spiegel, and it got picked up all around the world. An attack was coming on Wednesday, and even Zelensky, uh, uh, tongue in cheek, uh, said, "Well, if there's an attack coming on Wednesday, I'm going to have, uh, I'm going to have a unity day and bring the people into the streets to, to celebrate Ukraine," uh, which he. <laughs> which he actually did so that that got picked up uh by a lot of media here and and the, the pentagon never accepted that basic premise what they were and whether wednesday cover, or not
0: setting that aside could this be a diplomatic head fake and their actual internal planning hasn't really changed
4: it could be it could be but you know, there's no surprise here when putin starts to move i mean we'll have full visibility of all of that. I mean, it's you don't move forces around uh, on the scale that he would want to move them without us tracking it. If forces come across the border, we're going to see it. We've got plenty of imagery out there. We're eavesdropping on everything that's taken place as operational and tactical units. What we did have is some movement towards the border. That was indisputable. But what senior Pentagon officials who I was talking to said, listen, we don't have, uh, and execute order, and that's a fact. Um, and I, I've always believed that I cannot imagine Putin uh, taking uh, President Xi, his colleague, after they have established uh, this uh, this unofficial alliance, so to speak, together, uh, that he would take this closing ceremony off the world screen because he's racing across the U- Ukraine border uh, into Ukraine. It didn't make any sense to me. Um, And that that seems to be, you know, kind of where we're heading. I don't think uh, invasion is off off the table by any stretch. I mean, all his options are on the table. I think it's very clear in his mind that he wants to bring Ukraine under his sphere of influence, some level of control that he doesn't have right now. And if he's not able to achieve that, then he's going to move and attempt to topple that government and take it over and he'll <clears throat> i think he'll try to do that and minimize certainly the casualties that would uh ensue uh, in, <clears throat> in kiev and also occupy fully eastern ukraine and likely use naval infantry and also his units that are posted there on multiple axes uh to do that sort of thing all of those well, options and- are still available to him
0: You just mentioned, Kyiv, the capital in Ukraine, and the fact that the U.S., at least temporarily, has closed our embassy and evacuated our personnel and getting them out of there. I mean, is there – that would at least indicate to me that there's a real concern within the U.S. government and based on our intelligence that the Russians wouldn't just do what President Biden sort of famously, infamously referred to as a minor incursion into, let's say, eastern Ukraine, but could march to the capital, either to the capital itself or encircle it. We've seen different reports on that. I mean, that would be much more than just, you know, something sort of minor or a flex at the border. That would be a full-blown invasion and war and perhaps trying to topple the government. Is that a realistic scenario right now? Because, I mean, that's, that's much more aggressive than some of the things that were being discussed, at least based on what I was reading, even a few weeks ago.
4: Yeah, I don't think, uh, as this has unfolded, and see, we've been down the diplomatic path quite a bit now, uh, after weeks of that. Uh, I I think, in in my judgment, what's solidified uh, with Putin and his leaders, uh, and, and Zelensky here deserves a lot of credit, and I think Putin has underestimated him, uh, you know, coming from an entertainment industry with no political experience. Uh, he has been the toughest of the three anti-Russian leaders who have run the Ukraine government since the people of Ukraine ran out uh, Putin stooge Yanukovych back in 2014. And Zelensky has accelerated the movement to the West and has stood his ground on huge amount of pressure on him uh, to autonomize the uh, the Donbas region uh, republics there, and give them uh, uh, that that level of, of autonomy, which would give the, those republics some influence over the foreign policy of, of Ukraine. When he has resisted that, they had nine hours of uh, negotiations on Friday with his negotiators, and the Russians were pushing very hard for that. Uh, They're also pushing for some kind of realization by Zelensky, look it. Uh, You don't have to say it publicly. You commit to us that you'll never join NATO. Uh, And he's resisted all of that. And and he's kept his population together, no hoarding of food, no mass exodus. Uh, He's kept things. he, He hasn't let his economy tank. So I'm convinced that based on everything that's happened so far, And the fact that there has not been a diplomatic solution and Zelensky has not given in at all that Putin is in any scenario. I think he comes across that border. One thing that's going to be in the scenario is to topple the government because he doesn't get the answer he's going to have unless that government is toppled or there's some kind of concession that's taken place. But that doesn't mean that we 're going to see massive aerial bombardment and um, tanks and fighting vehicles and urban type warfare uh, inside the uh, inside the city that's that option is there. He certainly did that in Chechnya. He destroyed those uh, those towns and cities that were in Chechnya with artillery and air power he 's been absolutely brutal in the use of air power in, Sy- in Syria, absolutely committing uh, war criminal acts by bombing wholesale. Uh, hospitals and even using deep penetration bombs, the hospitals that were very uh, deep underneath the ground. So they, and, and, and just blowing away entire neighborhoods and villages. Yeah, I mean, he has no America.
0: compunction about doing any of that stuff, which is extremely distressing. You're just not sure if that's what's coming here. 20 seconds, General Keene, based on everything that you've just told us and what you're seeing right now. Is it your overall belief that a Russian invasion is still likely, but maybe not this week?
4: Yeah, I, I still think that option is very much on the table. Uh, Putin uh, is not going to walk away f- here with some kind of a fig leaf approval. He needs some some concession that's meaningful to him and, and certainly likely would have to be face-saving. I, I think he really wants... A return to the Minx agreement, uh, which they had in 2014, and that uh, Minx 2 was never able to, to work. Minx 1 failed because of the cease violation of the ceasefire. And, and that's got some possibilities because it's actually something to sign.
0: Okay, and so it's would, a possibility it of a of a significant face-saving concession, and I guess that's why we're back to the diplomacy now with an invasion still very much on the table. That's the upshot of it, it would seem. President Biden is going to speak about the latest coming up at the White House. We will monitor that for you here on The Guy Benson Show. We appreciate your insights. General Jack Keane. always here on the program. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, take care. Thank you. We will step aside and come right back. It's The Guy Benson Show.
3: The Guy Benson Show. More next. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I'm Guy Benson. We're back. I mentioned at the top of the show that the markets are up today, perhaps an expression of almost breathing a sigh of relief at reports that perhaps a shooting war in Europe has been forestalled by the resumption of diplomacy or renewed prospects for diplomacy. But the markets are certainly keeping an eye on another story here at home, and it's not a good story for the American people. Inflation just continues to rage. Here's the headline from foxbusiness.com earlier today. Wholesale prices jump 9.7% in January. Further evidence of red-hot inflation. Here's what the story says. Wholesale uh, prices accelerated again in January as strong consumer demand and pandemic-related supply chain snarls continued to fuel the highest inflation in decades. Labor Department said Tuesday that its producer price index, which... Measures inflation at the wholesale level before it reaches consumers surged 9.7% in January from the same year ago period, slightly below the 12-year high of 9.8% notch in November and December. But in an unexpected turn, prices rose 1% in January on a monthly basis, well above the revised game gain of 0.4% in December. Economists surveyed last month. Expected inflation to rise by 9.1% on an annual basis and 0.5% from the previous month. So these were much worse than expected numbers on this inflation metric. And that pain continues to plague the...
3: Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
0: It's the Guy Benson Show. We are back. Thank you for listening. Every weekday, 3 to 6 Eastern and around the clock on demand for free at GuyBensonShow.com. The free podcast, a big hit. Always appreciate you being here. I want to play some sound for you from Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And look, she says a lot of things basically every day. She is always, always, always... Desperate for attention, and she gets a lot of it. And I try not to take her bait very often. I don't really consider her a very serious person, although she does have a serious following, and there are people within her party who are seriously afraid of her, which is why she and her left wing squad is as influential as they are. But from time to time, she will say some things that I think are useful to amplify just to give you a sense of where she's coming from, maybe to motivate you a little bit if you're a conservative person, and also give you a window, just a peek and a glance into how some on the progressive fringe think, because she's kind of their ringleader. The first clip I want to play for you is she was down in Texas campaigning for one of her left wingers. She doesn't have a very good track record in terms of endorsements and primaries and that sort of thing, the party establishment tends to crush her. But she's still trying. And her attitude is, we're going to keep growing. The progressive left is going to get stronger and bigger. And ultimately, we're going to overrun the party establishment. And she might be right about that. But she was down in Texas, and she wanted the audience to understand that from their perspective, her perspective, and we've heard this now for a long time, It is only a matter of time before Texas becomes a blue state. They believe this based on demographics, that Texas is on borrowed time for the Republicans, and it's going to become a democratic state. And when they win Texas, then it's lights out for the Republican Party nationwide. Now, they might have had a stronger case even a few years ago on that front about the demographics. That's maybe not as clear to put it charitably, these days. But first, let's just listen to what she has to say. Listen to the applause lines here from the left-wing crowd down there in Texas, cut 11.
6: Texas turning blue is inevitable. (laughs) Inevitable. It will happen. The only question is when, Texas? The state will turn blue. It's going to happen with the seat of San Antonio and Austin. It's going to spring down to Laredo. It's going to go up to Houston as a down. Rural and urban and suburban. We're going to fight for a living wage as a minimum wage. We're going to make sure we unionize the hell out of this state.
0: Big roar for that last line. We're going to make sure we unionize the hell out of this state. All right, so let's think about this together for just a moment. The argument for a while was Texas is getting more diverse, more and more Hispanic. People are fleeing other states to Texas for the opportunity and the economic prosperity, but they're bringing their politics with them. And that combination of demographic changes and an influx of voters from places like California, that's going to turn Texas blue. And they'll point, for example, to Beto O'Rourke, who's out there lying right now about wanting to confiscate guns. He says, oh, I have no interest in taking anything from you. We played you the clip the other day on the show. He said as a presidential candidate on national television, hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15. So he's lying. But when he ran for Senate in Texas in 2018 against Ted Cruz, he raised a record amount of money at the time, like $60 million or something crazy, and came within three points of beating Ted Cruz. Donald Trump only won the state of Texas by mid-single digits in 2020. And so you add that up with some of the demographic movements, especially from a couple of years ago, and that conventional wisdom, and you could start to tell yourself the story that Texas is about to tip in the other direction. However, there are some counterpoints. 2018 was a Democratic year. The previous big Republican year was 2014. You had Governor Abbott on the ballot that year, Senator Cornyn on the ballot that year, those Republicans won by between 20 and 30 points in those races statewide in Texas. Greg Abbott, if I recall correctly, in 2014, won the governor's race by more than a million votes in one state. Even in 2020, when President Trump underperformed in the state of Texas, he was overperformed, By John Cornyn, U.S. senator, who won by double digits. And that was with someone at the top of the ticket who didn't play as well in Texas as traditional Republicans often do. I think this year, a Republican red-tinted year, is going to probably create some more problems for AOC's narrative. That this is a state that is inevitably turning blue. And part of the reason for that, by the way, is not just the enthusiasm gap and the intensity gap and a bunch of Texans who are going to turn out, I think, in very large numbers for Republicans, because Joe Biden is very unpopular down in the Lone Star State. It's also because some of the Hispanic voters that they've been counting on on the Democratic side, being their people who are going to fuel this big demographic push away from the Republican Party and flip the state into the blue category, a lot of those Texas Hispanics, are in fact becoming Republicans, and we have covered that phenomenon on this show. We read to you from a Politico story just recently about how Hispanics are trending in the opposite direction right now, and they're being led down in the border counties by conservative Hispanic women, Latinas. There have been mayoral seats that have flipped. There have been state legislative seats that have flipped. Joe Biden's performance down there was extremely weak compared to recent Democratic performances down by the border among Hispanics. So that whole calculus that AOC is talking about here is not looking nearly as inevitable as perhaps people once thought it was. So she might be a little outdated with that boasting. I also want to focus at the very end when she says, we're going to make sure when we win Texas, she says, and by the way, this should be motivating for you. If you're a conservative or even a centrist in Texas, it should motivate you that AOC believes that she can turn Texas blue and turn the country closer to her worldview as a result. Don't let that happen. Because she's promising when, in her mind, the inevitable occurs and Texas goes blue, we're going to, quote, We're going to make sure we unionize the hell out of this state. You get that big cheer from the crowd there. Think about why Texas is as successful as it is. Texas has regained all of the jobs lost already from the pandemic and then some. Texas is an economic engine. That is one of the reasons why the economy nationally isn't in the toilet under Joe Biden. It's thanks to Texas. By the way, there are four states so far that have eclipsed on jobs, the number of jobs lost during the pandemic. So they've made up their ground and then sort of ended up in the black, so to speak. All four of those states are Republican-run red states. That is not a coincidence. The biggest one, because Arizona is another one, Utah, I believe, the biggest one is Texas, where they have low taxes, low regulation, low governmental intervention, low unionization rates. The reason Texas is booming and helping the rest of the country recover is because they operate, their governance is basically the exact polar opposite, 180 degrees away from what AOC views as the right thing to do. They are taking the AOC prescription for America, throwing it in the garbage can and doing the opposite to great effect with excellent results that speak for themselves. And AOC sees it as a problem. No, no, we got to get down to Texas, and we've got to undo all of their success. The real model in her mind for the country is California and New York City. And she wants to fundamentally transform Texas into those places, and she believes she can do it, and she's making her threats about what would happen if they succeed. She's making them very plain. We should pay attention. And say, absolutely not. What's the phrase down there? Don't mess with Texas. Yeah, that applies very much in spades to AOC. So that's her boasting about Texas. Maybe put that in some ads if you're the Abbott people or the Republican Party of Texas in some of these swing districts. And there'll be some really hotly contested congressional races for sure down there. We know what AOC wants. And we know that the Democratic leadership nationally is afraid of her, panders to her, and often caves to her little crew. Don't give them influence. Don't give them a foothold anywhere, least of which Texas, I would say. So AOC also gave a separate interview. That was a campaign rally in the Lone Star State. She also sat down with the New Yorker. And she had a lot of very interesting things to say. For example, speaking of Texas in cut 12, some typical Stacey Abrams style dishonest fear mongering. Listen,
6: I think we will look like ourselves. I think we will return to Jim Crow. I think that's what we risk. You think we'll return to
3: Jim Crow. How would that what's the scenario for that happening?
6: Well, you you have it all already happening in Texas where Jim Crow style uh, disenfranchisement laws have already been proposed.
0: I mean, they, they discredit themselves when they talk about Jim Crow coming back. We are nowhere close to a reality in the United States where we would be returning to Jim Crow. It is insulting and wrong to pretend otherwise. And her example is the Texas elections law is what she was referencing there, which expands minimum early voting. Expands. What it does is it gets rid of some of the 24-hour voting provisions that they put in during the pandemic. It gets rid of certain, like, drive-through voting that you could do that was for an emergency in the middle of a pandemic. It just claws back some of these emergency-level provisions that were put in temporarily when people, you know, were in the middle of this very communicable virus situation, and it brings us back to a pre-pandemic reality and yes, add some safeguards, like if you're going to be doing absentee balloting, you have to prove that you're the person with your ID number, with the last four of your social. That is common sense stuff. The people support these things. This is not Jim Crow. This is not suppression. This is common sense. And as I mentioned, it expands early voting minimum hours. Right. These are the same attacks that we saw in Georgia that were similarly factually wrong, dishonest, and I would say designed to spread fear and misinformation, frankly, so that they can make this ridiculous statement and warn that we're on the brink of returning to Jim Crow and it's already happening in Texas. That's what AOC believes. That's what she wants people to believe. It's not true. But she had to keep the hysteria going, and she did in Cut 10.
3: You used a phrase earlier – In the midst of this, if we have a democracy 10 years from now, Mm
0: -hmm.
3: do you think we won't?
6: I think there's a very real risk that we will not. I think what we risk is having a a government that perhaps postures as a democracy and may try to pretend that it is, but isn't.
0: Uh Uh-huh. So we've got Jim Crow coming back. We've got democracy going away. We're going to take over Texas and unionize the hell out of it. And then she had one more interesting comment talking about the explosion of violent crime in mostly Democrat-run cities. She has a theory behind that, and it's some galaxy brain stuff, cut nine.
6: This surge in violence is being driven by young people and particularly young men. And we allow discourse to make it sound as though it's like these shady figures in the bush jumping out from a corner. These are young. These are boys. Because we we run away from substantive discussions about this, we don't want to say some of the things that are that are obvious, like, gee, the child tax credit just ran out on December 31st. And now people are stealing baby formula. We don't want to have that discussion. We want to say these people are criminals or we want to talk about people that are violent instead of environments of violence and what we are doing to either contribute or to dismantle that.
0: Oh, so we shouldn't talk about people who are violent, even if they're, what, shooting cops? It's environments of violence, and we have to work to dismantle that. I'm sorry, did she talk about the child tax credit being a factor in the rise in violent crime? In American cities, where you've got gangs and drugs and politicians like her fellow squadsters calling for the police to be defunded and left-wing prosecutors effectively legalizing crime. I feel like those are maybe much bigger factors than the December 31st expiration of a tax credit. She says, oh, we run away from substantive discussions about the crime problem. And then she blames the crime problem on young men upset that their, what, their child tax credit just expired? I'm pretty sure that the explosion in crime was very well underway before that happened, I would note, before any tax provision sunsetted. And if she thinks that having a substantive conversation about a crime problem in this country means we need to really dig in to the child tax credit, I think that she is so woefully mistaken. It's almost funny. That that is quite a take. I did not expect that that would be like on the bingo card where her brain went, but it is. And always, always, always with her and people like her, it's never the fault of progressive left-wing policies and weakness that lead to other problems. It's the absence of even more government intervention. Not law enforcement intervention, but other forms of government intervention, like welfare and giving people money and all this stuff. It's always an excuse to pursue their agenda. It is never a critique or a legitimate critique of their agenda. And the other side's agenda, in their mind, is Jim Crow and taking democracy away, which is why we have to take over Texas and unionize the hell out of it. I mean, this is not a coherent worldview. This is not a serious person talking about serious solutions. But she has a huge platform, a big following, and a lot of people in her party who see her as the future. And leaders who worry that she's the future and are trying to make sure that they don't get outflanked by her. Which is why from time to time, it's worth listening to the words that come out of this woman's mouth. I just played you a bunch of them. I think they speak for themselves. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back after this.
3: Fresh Conservative Talk. Kai Benson Show.
0: Welcome back. It's the Guy Benson Show. We just spoke quite a bit in the last segment about one New York congresswoman, a Democrat. Let's talk about another one. Congresswoman Kathleen Rice of the Empire State announcing today she will not seek re-election this year. She's announcing her retirement. She's headed for the exits. That would be House Democrat number 30 to step down this cycle and not seek re-election to the House. And As I point out every time, it's not necessarily about that particular seat being competitive or not it's about Democrats seeing the writing on the wall and not wanting to be in the minority which they expect to be after November let's manifest that for them and put AOC into a rump caucus of a minority very doable as many House Democrats dozens seem to understand another one going down next hour of the Guy Benson show coming up we'll turn to the Senate and U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee when we come back
3: the most powerful city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show
0: it's a brand new hour here on the guy benson show i'm guy benson thank you so much always for listening between 3 and 6 p.m. eastern time or if you miss that you can listen to the podcast whenever you want no charge to you at all guy benson show Dot com. With us now is U.S. Senator Marshall Blackburn, a Republican of Tennessee. She serves on multiple influential committees, including Judiciary. Her book is The Mind of a Conservative Woman. She also hosts a podcast called Freedom Rings. Senator, good to have you back on the show.
1: It is good to be with you. Thank you.
0: Before we get to some other subjects, because you are a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, I just wanted to get your take on President Biden's process here in selecting a replacement for the retiring justice on the Supreme Court, Stephen Breyer. We know that there's some time between now and that vacancy arising. I know some people on the progressive left are getting frustrated that there hasn't been an announcement yet of a nominee. I guess they're going through the vetting process. But one of the controversies and sort of flaps about this is that Biden promised ahead of time, as a candidate, in fact, and is following through, that he will only consider black women to fill this vacancy. That's the only category in terms of sex and race that he will even look at to be a candidate for this spot. And the point that some people have been making, myself included, is there's no question that there are highly qualified black women who would very much be in the mix or near the top of the list for a vacancy like this. But is it really a sign of progress to announce ahead of time, effectively discrimination on the basis of sex and skin color, to narrow down the field of anyone that you'll even consider. What do you think of that, Senator?
1: Guy, we want to see diversity of race, gender, and philosophical thoughts on a court. But what has happened with this is it diminishes someone who would be brought to the forefront to be that nominee. People want to have, and the polling shows the American public actually feels this way. They want the most well-qualified person for the position. And there has been, in the polling that I've seen, more or less a recitation from the American public that they want the most well-qualified person, they want someone that's a constitutionalist, that believes in the rule of law, and is going to abide by federal statutes, the Constitution, and the rule of law.
0: Meanwhile, on the foreign policy front, just shifting gears completely, I know you're a member as well of the Armed Services Committee You've co-written and co-introduced a bill across party lines. So there's fellow Republicans on there. There's some Democratic co-sponsors. You're calling it the Ukraine Democracy Defense Lend-Lease Act. What would this do? What's the goal behind this push?
1: What we want to do is make certain that Russia understands what will happen uh, if they continue to push at Ukraine. Now, part of the problem has been that you have – Biden saying he is only going to take action after the fact. And what we think is that action should come before Russia makes an invasion and Ukraine should be Protected in this. Now, last fall, a group of us and I sent a letter, others also, to the White House saying now's the time for sanctions that are going to hit uh, Putin, hit the country, hit the oligarchs, and really tie down their economy. Then was the time to begin to sell. That is when you would actually exercise those sales of foreign equipment. To Ukraine, to the Army, so that they could protect themselves, rather than waiting to the last minute. And I appreciate that the president is finally paying attention to what is happening in Ukraine, because we know that what is happening there, Putin wants to reassemble the old Soviet Union. It is important that the U.S. work with Ukraine, that we sell them this equipment they need, that we make certain that our NATO allies that are in the region have what they need to push back on Russia.
0: North of our border, there is this huge battle roiling Canada. And in the last 24 hours, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has invoked emergency powers. I saw his deputy... Announcing what some of these powers entail. I mean, it's to an American ear, it's just shocking what they're saying where without warrants, without authorization under these emergency powers, the government can come in and start seizing bank accounts if they feel like it's in the national interest. I know some civil liberties groups up in Canada are saying this is a gross abuse. The government's own standards for invoking this type of emergency uh, have not been met. It feels like whatever you make of the truckers and whether you think that they're acting lawfully and whether it's constructive, the behavior of the government in Canada and Trudeau's administration, if you want to call it that, the things that he has said, the words that he's used to smear people who disagree with him, to attack, in many cases, peaceful protesters. And now this significant escalation, I mean, it's pretty eye-opening, Senator, what's happening
1: indeed eye-opening. And Justin Trudeau is really abusing his power and using that to target his political opponents. And one of the things that you continue to hear from news reports up there is that this autocratic style that he has taken on because of these protests. And protests should be peaceful. People should continue to um, protest peacefully. And they have that right to stand up and speak out against their government, but he is not wanting to allow that. And, you know, I I think that it has shocked a lot of Canadians that he has used his power to target his political opponents. And um, I, I think it's important for President Biden to stand up and call on Trudeau to allow for political... peaceful political protest and free speech.
0: You've talked in that answer there just for a moment, Senator, about the targeting of political opponents and abusive actions of people within the government. That's in Canada. Here in the United States, some of those words are coming to mind. As we're learning more, just little dribs and drabs dripping out of the Durham investigation into the Russia matter and that whole controversy. I saw a graphic that we had on Fox News yesterday on the news channel that the major networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, also MSNBC, combined, since the John Durham court filing came out over the weekend, had discussed it for a total of zero combined seconds on their news broadcasts. CNN, I think, had done about two minutes total on this issue. I remember, Senator, when Any potential development involving Russia and Donald Trump was covered ad nauseum. I mean, wall to wall, any minor development or scooplet was turned into huge banner headlines and, you know, breaking news graphics and all of that. Now, almost nothing. On what we are learning, and we don't have the full picture, and I'm not trying to get ahead of this or draw too many conclusions, but this would be seemingly a pretty significant development involving Trump and Russia, just not the way that the media narrative would like it to, and the media is doing what the media so often does, which is they're suppressing a story that makes them unhappy and does not have the potential to achieve political goals that they're interested in. Am I being too cynical in that assessment?
1: No, not at all. And Guy, as you well know, we have said, those of us at Senate judiciary have been saying, let John Durham do his job. Let him continue and work through his investigation. He has been very methodical, very deliberate. And this investigation shows just how desperate the Clinton campaign was to win, and then how furious they were when they lost, and how they immediately set about making certain. That they never accepted Donald Trump as president of the United States. And now to find out that her campaign actually paid off hackers to frame the the president as having a, a relationship with Russia and saying that he had these ties and knowing that the campaign for Trump was housed there at Trump Tower, the transition committee. I was vice chair of the Transition Committee. It was housed there at Trump Tower. And now to learn that all of this was subject to hacking and surveillance. This tech executive that worked for Michael Sussman, who was a top DNC lawyer with ties to Mark Elias, ties to Jake Sullivan, and Sussman is feeding this information to the FBI while lying to the yes. FBI that he was not saying he was not working for the Clinton campaign. But he and was. the Clinton campaign, yes, he was working for them, and they were paying the bill. And paying Kim. And for all of this to come out, I will tell you one thing. I think that knowing that when these allegations broke, it was Jake Sullivan that released a statement pushing the hoax. It was Jake Sullivan's involvement in the Russia collusion hoax that has brought a lot of this forward and continued to stir the media to cover this. And because of it, I think he should be investigated. He should be immediately removed as the president's national security advisor. And it's astounding to me that the Democratic Party has not stood up and said, okay, until this is resolved, these individuals need to be stepping aside.
0: Well, I mean, they're not saying anything close to that, and part of the reason that they're saying virtually nothing at all about this revelation to the extent that we really fully understand its implications is because their buddies in the mainstream press are effectively blacking out the coverage of it whatsoever. I mean, there's, there's virtually none, as I mentioned uh, in the statistics that I rehearsed earlier. Last question for you, Senator Marshall Blackburn, my guest here, Republican of Tennessee – You are someone who talks a lot about China, the threat of the Chinese Communist Party, and the influence that the CCP wields on American institutions, American companies, American organizations. We just recently, Senator, had on this show Ennis Cantor, formerly of the Boston Celtics. He's now Ennis Cantor Freedom. He's been speaking out against the Genocide Olympics, I think rightfully so. He's been calling out hypocrisy that he sees in the NBA on human rights issues and civil rights issues and social justice issues, and the list goes on. He was traded away from the Celtics to the Houston Rockets, who then promptly cut him. They released him. And I wonder if you think that this is the league retaliating against someone who has had a very big megaphone, has been very outspoken on these issues just in the wrong way, on the wrong sorts of things, because we know, we've seen it, including, I mean, the Houston Rockets have a role in this. We know that the NBA will do almost anything to avoid rankling or offending the Chinese. Are they trying to silence a squeaky wheel here?
1: you would have to look at how this progression of events has carried out and say that is probably what they are doing the MB- NBA made such a calculated choice in deciding they were going to kowtow to the Chinese Communist Party, and they really have turned a blind eye to the genocide, the oppression, the slave labor that is being carried out there, and they've done it by using the firing of Ennis Cantor Freedom, and I really applaud him for how he has stood up and has stood on the side of freedom, stood on the side of the Chinese people and the Uyghurs that are subject to this genocide. And the NBA is on the wrong side of history because they are choosing profit over freedom. They have now aligned themselves with the actions of the Chinese Communist Party. This is setting a very dangerous precedent.
0: U.S. Senator Marshall Blackburn, Republican of Tennessee, my guest here on the Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday edition. Senator, always appreciate it. We'll talk soon.
1: Absolutely. Thank you. Take care.
0: You bet. And the Guy Benson Show will resume after this short break. Don't go anywhere. Guy Benson will be right back. I'm Guy Benson. This is quite a story developing today. Let's start with a flashback. The Courier-Journal is the biggest, most influential newspaper in Kentucky. And they've had a writer who's done some editorial work, some op-ed work for them in the past, named Quintez Brown. And here he is. I'm looking at his byline from a piece he wrote, a column he wrote in 2019, July of 2019. There's his photograph. Quintez Brown, Courier-Journal columnist. Headline on this piece, back in 2019, early July Kentucky's concealed carry law shows your life doesn't matter to gun-loving Republicans. Here's how the piece begins by Quintez Brown in 2019. Your life has no meaning to the irresponsible politicians in Frankfurt who time and time again choose the National Rifle Association over your life. Here's how his column concluded that day. To them, meaning Republicans in Kentucky, your life doesn't matter. And until we elect politicians who are truly committed to democracy and human rights, who truly believe that all people are created equal, rather they be undocumented immigrants, trans people, or unhoused people, we must continue to disrupt, resist, and fight for humanity. So, I mean, this is just a jumble of words. It is not well written at all. But the message is clear. Pro-gun Republicans don't care about your life They don't care about humanity, and we've got to fight them on behalf of trans people and the homeless and undocumented immigrants because these gun zealots are killing us or whatever. And then at the bottom of the piece, and he wrote many, there's a little bio in italicized font. Quintez Brown is an opinion writer at the Courier-Journal. Okay, so that's the hot, really lukewarm take from this guy two years ago writing a left-wing piece In a very liberal newspaper, fine. There's a bit of a twist ending to this saga. Here's a Courier-Journal headline from yesterday. It was published last evening and then updated this morning. Activist named in attempted shooting of Louisville mayor candidate Greenberg. Here's the story written by Andrew Wolfson. A Louisville activist has been identified as a suspect in Monday's attempted shooting of mayoral candidate Craig Ginsburg. This is a Jewish candidate who's running for mayor. This was an attempted assassination. It was a shooting. Quintez Brown was charged with attempted murder and four counts of wanton endangerment after Greenberg was shot in his campaign headquarters Monday morning. Same guy. The left-wing activist and opinion writer Quintez Brown, who believes that everyone's life doesn't matter to the evil pro-gun GOP, he is now charged with attempted murder in the shooting of a Democratic politician running for office. You can't make that up. Maybe we should not listen to Quintez Brown and make sure that people do have the right to bear arms to protect themselves against people like Quintez Brown. I saw one of Joe Biden's ad makers immediately blame this on right-wingers, right-wing violence, right-wing rhetoric. Oops. What a story. Quintez Brown, an epic journey and a wild conclusion down in Kentucky today. Woo. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this.
3: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
0: As we continue on the Guy Benson show, I saw this piece in the UK Telegraph yesterday. And the headline asks provocatively this question, was Sweden right about COVID all along? It's written by a man named Fraser Nelson from the perspective of a Brit. But I think that there are very much questions along these lines that can be asked looking at U.S. data as well, because Sweden during the pandemic, has been sort of a lightning rod for criticism, for applause, where people who were against government restrictions and heavy handed interventions would point to Sweden saying what they're doing with their government is the right approach on COVID. And then other people who were much more in favor of lockdowns and restrictions would say, no, this is a dangerous and reckless experiment, what the Swedish government is up to. And the decisions being made in Stockholm. And then whenever the data would look decent, because this comes and goes, right? It ebbs and flows some of the data and the peaks and the waves. So when Sweden was doing relatively well, you had some folks pointing and touting like, look, they got it right. And then when Sweden was having a difficult time and their death rate, for example, was elevated in the early going in particular, the critics said, see, we're vindicated And this is an indictment of the decisions that they've made. Well, now we're roughly two years into this thing. What to make of the Swedish model, if you will? I think it's important first to point out that even though the government did not require a lot of things, and when they did, it was targeted, it wasn't for very long, the people in Sweden, the populace, they were extremely cautious. Just because they could do certain things didn't mean that culturally they were inclined to do a bunch of those things. So I think that's an important distinction. You can also dig down and look at how they compared to some of their neighbors. I think you see some positive comparisons, maybe some negative ones as well. With all that being said, and with a lot of caveats in place, because we're not through the entire pandemic yet, I think it's early to be writing any definitive history. Overall, Fraser Nelson at The Telegraph, in asking that question, was Sweden right all along? Uh, He makes some interesting points. So here's part of what he writes. During the lockdowns, this is early days, Sweden became the world's defiant outlier. Swedes saw it the other way around. They were keeping calm and carrying on. Lockdown was an extreme, draconian, untested experiment. Lock everyone up, keep children out of school, suspend civil liberties, send police after people walking their dogs, and call this caution? Caution? Anders Tegnell, Sweden's state epidemiologist, never spoke about a Swedish experiment. He said all along he could not recommend a public health intervention that had never been proven. Tegnell also made another point, that he didn't claim to be right. He said it would take years to see who had jumped the right way. His calculation was that on a whole society basis, the collateral damage of lockdowns would outweigh what good they would do. But you'd only know that this was the case after a few years. You'd have to look at cancer diagnoses, hospital waiting lists, educational damage, and yes, of course, count the COVID dead. Almost two years on, we can look at the early indications. I'm reading from the UK Telegraph. And I'll just pause here for a moment, and I wrote about this at townhall.com today as well, to remind you of a recent Johns Hopkins study That determined that COVID lockdowns, the type that Sweden rejected, had negligible impact on saving lives in the United States and over in Europe. Now, there have been criticisms of the methodology of that study. Scientists, some of them have said they disagree. But that's at least a study, it's out there, that has tried to quantify this stuff and found that lockdowns were not an effective, life-saving intervention by governments. So that would potentially be... A point in Sweden's favor. So the story at the Telegraph goes on and the writer starts to compare Sweden's outcomes and stats against the United Kingdoms. Quoting again, as Sweden abolishes all domestic COVID restrictions, it emerges with one of Europe's lower COVID death tolls. Their rate, their COVID death rate is 1,614 per million people, just over half the amount In Britain, which was 2,335 per million. Given that our death tolls were comparable at first, both among the worst anywhere, talking about Sweden and the U.K., it's hard to argue that there's some demographic force, which meant COVID was never going to spread in Sweden. Nor is it possible to argue that Sweden was some hedonistic party nation. Its people were incredibly cautious, but unlike Brits, they had a government that trusted them. The government and the populace's decisions kept COVID low, while the lack of rules allowed for people to use their judgment while minimizing economic and social damage. Sweden's GDP fell by 2.9% in 2020, while Britain's collapsed by 9.4%. Both have bounded back, but Sweden's economy is this year expected to be 5% larger than before the pandemic versus 2% larger for Germany. The U.K. will be about 1% larger, one of the lowest figures in Europe. The cost of various COVID measures is best summed up by the debt mountain, an extra 8,400 British pounds per head in Britain, talking about all the COVID spending. Meanwhile, here we've spent trillions of dollars, of course. The number in Sweden, less than half that, 3,000 U.K. pounds per head in Sweden. Here's a key passage. Swedish schools kept going throughout with no face masks. Undergraduates switched to home learning, but the rest of Swedish children went to school as normal. No masks. That's not to say there weren't absences as the virus spread. It was common to see sometimes a third, even at times half of a class absent due to sniffles or suspected COVID. But there was no full-scale closure. And aside from some suspicions about minor grade inflation, there is no talk in Sweden about educational devastation. So let's think about this. We heard the Sweden versus UK numbers. Let's look at it from an American perspective. The Swedish COVID death rate per million is about 1600. Here in the United States, it is nearly 2800 per million. I mean, getting closer to double. The death rate in this country versus Sweden. Now we had a lot of different pockets of different approaches, right? We had some permissive States like Texas and Florida that are driving our economic recovery. By the way, you had other places that remain extremely restrictive, including on schools. I mean, we had schools closed in a lot of this country for a year and a half. Talk about educational devastation in some of those same places that were dead wrong about school closures. They still have masks on kids. In Sweden, they didn't close schools. They didn't put masks on children. And guess what? In a country of more than 10 million people, fewer than 20 Swedish kids total, ages 0 to 19, have died with or of COVID. Fewer than 20 in the entire pandemic. In a country that had wide open schools with no masks throughout the entire pandemic. There's a lesson there. It's a lesson that's also been learned elsewhere, including in some of our states, and it's a lesson that a lot of people refuse to learn in this country. I'm not making an argument that Sweden did everything perfectly. I don't think anywhere in the world can claim that they handled everything perfectly. But Sweden did what they did. They came under withering criticism. They picked their spots about what they were going to mandate and require – and then they let the chips fall. And a lot of the chips have fallen in their favor. Now, they're not just like a loosey-goosey, goes, letter rip type country. They have a very high vaccination rate. In fact, they have, by nine percentage points, a better fully vaccinated rate than we do here in America. So that could perhaps be one of the explanatory factors behind their death toll and death rate being so much better than ours. They are more vaccinated than we are. Their government is now recommending for elderly people over the age of 80 to get a fourth shot, so a second booster. Right? So it's not like again this notion that they were just like, "Oh yeah, free for all. Do whatever you want in Sweden. We're not going to recommend anything. We're not going to require anything. Go party it up and have giant, you know, dance raves." That's not what it was like. But in terms of government mandates, all along the way, they have been a pretty significant outlier. And a lot of the experts said it was going to end disastrously for them. And that's not what has actually happened. One more factor that I want to bring into play here, and I think it is relevant because it's something that we have learned more and more, is very much one of the risk factors at play with COVID. And I know when people bring it up, they are accused of fat shaming and being judgmental and all of this stuff. It's just a medical reality that obesity is a risk factor. People who are obese are at greater risk of having severe COVID outcomes. That's the truth. That's what the data shows. And so when we're comparing Sweden's relatively quite good death rate per million versus ours, which is not terribly good, nearly 2,800 per million here versus 1,600 per million over there, Only about one out of five adults in Sweden is obese. In the United States, it's around 36%. So significantly over one out of three are obese in the United States. That is absolutely something that needs to be looked at if you're trying to pinpoint why there are some disparities in outcome. Why there are some disparities in outcomes. But I just find it very interesting that a lot of the experts... Remember, Fauci was critical of Sweden. A lot of people said, oh, they're just going to have death and misery and untold suffering in Sweden because they are not doing X, Y, and Z the way that the rest of the world, in large measure, especially in the West and elsewhere, what they're doing, this is the right thing to do. These types of lockdowns are what we ought to be doing. Now there is some data suggesting that the lockdowns were not terribly effective at all at saving lives. They created other problems that led to other challenges including deaths. And what the Swedes ended up doing was having a light governmental touch and crucially keeping their schools open the whole time with no masks. And they have emerged in much better shape than a lot of other nations. And on some key metrics, a lot better shape than we have. So I'm not prepared to answer that question posed in the headline at this UK telegraph piece. Was Sweden right about COVID all along? I'm not ready to say definitively yes, but based on the early indications, right, the outcomes that we can actually see and measure at this stage, almost two years in, I think there's a pretty strong case to be made that Sweden certainly wasn't wrong all along, the way that we were assured, and they were warned. I think that is very interesting stuff, and I'm glad that this is an issue and a question that's being revisited. And it should be revisited again and again. There are going to be books written about this stuff, I think, for years. And I think a lot of the people claiming expertise and speaking like with the voice of God telling us from on high what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is dangerous, I think ultimately they will have a lot to answer for. Some of that isn't their fault. Some of it might be. The Guy Benson Show. Resumes after this short break. Stay with us.
3: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
0: Back on The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast every day. So, a couple weeks ago, is this early, early February, first or second of the month? There was a new poll that came out from USA Today out of Florida. And it had lots of very good news for Governor Ron DeSantis and other Republicans in the state, including Senator Marco Rubio. Some very bad news for the Democrats in that state and also for President Joe Biden. And we brought you those results on this show. And I enjoyed going through some of the polling numbers because they were so devastating, mostly, of course, to the Democrats, but I would say mostly to the media. Because the media has worked so hard To try to tear down Ron DeSantis. They view him as a threat politically. And they have acted basically as a giant national Democratic super PAC. Throwing everything they've got at this guy. And yet he had good favorability numbers. He was leading his potential Democratic challengers by substantial margins. And the numbers just look good for him. In spite of all of it. The attacks, the smears... Had not worked. Well, here's a new one. Brand new poll out today. Mason-Dixon poll. And I will probably mention this coming up in the next hour. We have Josh Krasauer here. I want to ask him what he makes of this. Because Florida is the biggest, most populous, most diverse swing state in the country. Right? DeSantis and Senator Rick Scott, they were both on the ticket together in 2018. They both won by less than one percentage point. I think DeSantis is less than half a percentage point in his race. It goes back and forth. You think about 2000 and the whole presidential race coming down to a few hundred votes in Florida. Barack Obama won Florida twice. It seems to be trending red down there, partially because of the leadership of the Republicans. And here's what this new Mason-Dixon survey of Floridians finds. They do head-to-head matchups. Ron DeSantis running for re-election against his two most likely challengers, Charlie Crist, who's been a Republican and a Democrat and an Independent. Now he's a Democrat, so he wants to be governor again in a different party. It's DeSantis 51, Crist 43. You do that math, that's plus 8 for DeSantis. I mean, if that's even close to what happens in November, that's a blowout by Florida standards. Plus 8? With DeSantis currently above the 50% mark, that's very significant. And then against Nikki Freed, the conspiracy theorist and the ag commissioner, the only statewide Democrat currently elected down in Florida, it's DeSantis 53, Freed 42, plus 11 for DeSantis. I mean, look, I think it'll tighten As the election gets closer, some partisans, quote-unquote, come home. I mean, no one wins by double digits in Florida. It's just not really a thing. But could DeSantis flirt with that? Maybe? It would appear so. The internals of this poll ask about favorable, unfavorable. Do you have a favorable opinion of Ron DeSantis or an unfavorable opinion of the governor? Overall, he's plus 10, 53-43. 53-43. What a failure by the media, by the way. Among Hispanics, this caught my attention, he's plus 6, 50-44. So a majority of Hispanic voters in Florida have a favorable view of Governor Ron DeSantis. Here's a key one. Independence. Because he's unpopular with Democrats, very popular with Republicans. Independence, 61% favorable, 32 unfavorable. Almost a two-to-one margin. Women are split 47-49. Men love them. Some Ron DeSantis. 60-37. Sort of close to the independence numbers. Ron DeSantis has built something in the state of Florida. With his leadership, he's weathered these attacks. He is, I think, on the brink of winning a pretty substantial victory in November. And if he does that, he's got a statement that he can then point to. He's got results he can point to electorally and on policy that would make him, I think, a very intriguing national figure. Let's put it that way. And let's see what happens in November. Still a ways to go, but I'd imagine a lot of smiles around the governor's office today looking at these numbers down in Tallahassee. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. As I mentioned, Josh Krasauer here talking about this, talking about Virginia and more. That's straight ahead. It is the happy hour on this Tuesday. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening to the Guy Benson Show. Our website here, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is always free every single day on demand when the show ends. We air, of course, live 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. GuyBensonShow.com. And the happy hour, as always, sponsored by our friends at the Finish Long Drink. I've been teasing for a while that they're going to be expanding into new states. They have announced some of those expansions today. The Long Drink now available for sale in Arkansas, Indiana, Tennessee, and Wisconsin. So if you're a listener in any of those four states or the many states where it's already available, congratulations. It's a big day. I'm told there's more to come. TheLongDrink.com is their website. It's this crisp, Citrus soda with a premium liquor kick. It's really delicious. TheLongDrink.com to see where it's sold near you. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. With us now is Josh Krasauer, politics editor at National Journal and a Fox News radio political analyst. Josh, great to have you back here.
5: Hey, Guy. Great to be back on the show.
0: I want to start in Virginia, and I want to play a soundbite. This is Governor Glenn Youngkin. And his new public service announcement that he's airing in Virginia, urging the residents of this state to get vaccinated against COVID-19, cut 15. COVID-19 has affected us all. Life disrupted and lives lost. But here in Virginia, a better day is right around the corner. I won't mandate it, but my family and I made the choice to get vaccinated. The vaccine is the best way to protect our lives and loved ones. To find a vaccination site or to learn more, visit virginia.gov. We have come so far. So I'm asking you as your friend and your neighbor, please get the vaccine. And we can get through this together. All right, Josh. So a couple things here. Some people were like, oh, I'm surprised he did this. They shouldn't be surprised. He was smeared, I think, wrongly on the campaign trail as anti-vax by the Democrats. He was never that. He was anti-mandate. He was, in fact, pro-vaccine, even cut a PSA as a candidate in favor of the vaccine. There's just a difference between saying, as he just did there, I'm asking you and I'm telling you. He hastened to point out, I will not mandate it, but my family has done this. It can make a difference. Please consider doing this. And to me, that seems... Like a really good message for a political leader, it appeals to a lot of voters in Virginia, including some of the voters who are probably very gung-ho about his decisions on masking and school masking. He's won some big victories there. And then some of the people who might be a little bit hesitant on that stuff, this seems like it's a smart play on the science and also a smart play on the politics.
5: Yeah, guy, it's a play to the political middle, the silent majority. The message, and I've written about this in my columns, but the the message that Democrats should have been saying for a long time is get vaxxed, get boosted, get back to normal. And that's what Youngkin, for the most part, said on the campaign trail. It's what won him, the governorship, and it's what he's lived up to, as you know, that he – has really succeeded and he he had bipartisan support in the state legislature even a few democrats in the state senate uh jumped on board with his plan to allow kids or allow parents to choose whether their kids wear masks in schools living up to one of his big promises parents rights but now he's also saying you know he's urging virginians especially in some of the communities with lower vaccination rates to to get vaccinated to get to get get their health uh or get protection with the vaccines and put them in better shape so, you know, that's, that's how you persuade.
0: And by the way, so, just to jump into just the tone of it, this is cheerful. This is encouragement. This isn't a harangue, right? He's doing this as kind of a neighbor, right? Here's what we're doing. Please consider doing it for these reasons. Just the tone is so different and to me very refreshing compared to what we've seen from a lot of other politicians, maybe at both polls, right, on this stuff.
5: Well, and, and, Guy, it's worth noting that now Democratic politicians are basically imitating Youngkin, even though they're not mentioning his name. They're, they're taking the same approach. In Washington, D.C., the mayor of, of, of one of the bluest parts of the country is getting rid of vaccine mandates after less than a month, right? They're, they're she's acknowledging what Youngkin has been saying since he ran for, 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 for governor. Um, you're seeing, you know, House leaders, blue state governors getting rid of uh, the mask regulations that are in their states as well, even though it's much later than when, when Youngkin started the process. So, you know, he is a, he's been ahead of the curve. He's understood where the political middle is, even though there's a lot of loud voices on the left. And I, and I think it's also a notable distinction with, like, a governor like Florida's Ron DeSantis, who has, you know, also been ahead of the curve on some of these things, but also has been Less open about whether he's gotten boosted, but you know, encouraging Floridians to get boosted, um, you know, to protect themselves. So I think he's found a nice little sweet spot politically, both in Virginia, but I think maybe he's previewing a national message uh, as well because this is the kind of rhetoric that resonates,
0: probably. Well, I think sweet spot is exactly the way I would put it, the way that I did put it in my TownHall.com piece about it today. We'll get back to Governor DeSantis in Florida in just a moment, and I also point out that just looking at the data in December. People who are unvaccinated in this country who got COVID were 97 times more likely to die than those who were fully vaccinated and boosted. Even if you're not boosted, if you're fully vaccinated with two shots, you are 14 times less likely to die of covid than unvaccinated people. And I recognize natural immunity is a big piece of this puzzle. We talk about it all the time with our doctors on the show. Also, most people survive COVID regardless of vaccination status. That is true. An overwhelming majority of people recover. But the vaccines do make a difference, even if they don't stop you from, you know, transmitting Omicron or catching one of these variants. They do keep you overwhelmingly out of the hospital and out of the grave, out of the morgue which I think are the most important metrics for success. That's the reason why a guy like Yunkin is encouraging people to get vaccinated, not forcing people, however, to get vaccinated. And he's trying, I think on the political side, Josh, to thread the needle because you've got a lot of people who are maybe very moderate Republicans or center left folks who may have voted for Yunkin. They may have seen him racking up a number of wins that the political right is very excited about. And this is, in addition to being, I think, solid and sound on the science, it's also a message to them saying, no, I'm still the guy that you thought I was. I'm not someone who campaigned as sort of a sensible conservative, and now I'm going to govern way out on the right. I'm in that middle lane, maybe the center-right middle lane, but I am who I said I was. I think there's maybe a subliminal political message being telegraphed here as well.
5: Well, it's good, it's good governance. And in Virginia, it's the only state in the country where you only serve one term. So Governor Yunkin can't run for reelection, at least right away again. So on one hand, you could be thinking he's doing this, just trying to get the vaccination rates up in the state and and making Virginia a leader when it comes to, to giving parents choice when it comes to masking and a whole lot of other educational issues. On the other hand, you could as someone who covers politics, look at this as, as, as seeing a possible preview for, for a national campaign, for someone who has larger ambitions at some point. Or another together. type of
0: campaign, right? He could he could look at a Senate seat. I mean, this is an ambitious guy. He wants to do the job well. And I think so far, I mean, he has exceeded my expectations, and I've been a fan of his. I was not shy or bashful about saying that I was a supporter of his in Virginia, And he's done a terrific job. And one of the things that I love best, and you've now mentioned it twice, his delivery on the campaign promise to allow parents to make decisions for their children when it comes to masking in schools. The science does not support forced masking in schools. It just doesn't, for reasons that we have gone over with a fine-tooth comb repeatedly on this show. Yunkin understands the data. He understands the science. He also understands where public opinion is going on this, and yesterday we broke the news here, or at least covered the breaking news, that the House of Delegates had passed on party lines the bipartisan bill that you referenced there, which would do precisely what Yunkin campaigned on. He was attacked for it. He won anyway. And then here's the audio of the leader of the Republicans in the lower house in Richmond delivering the bill to Governor Yunkin yesterday in cut Seventeen. It's my pleasure <laughs> to deliver Senate Bill 739 to you.
5: Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. I am I am uh, incredibly excited for you to be delivering it to me. <laughs> and uh, we're going to go to work immediately to uh, uh, attach a, an emergency clause yes, and get this back to you so we can put this in place. Understood. We'll let so, you get I look forward to signing it. Yes, sir.
0: Yeah. Thank, thank you, thank you yes, very, sir. very much. sir. So what you heard there, Josh, was Governor Yunkin announcing that he was very pleased that this bill passed both houses, but he was sending it back to the legislature with this emergency provision attached. This is something that the governor has the power to do. In fact, Democrats, when they controlled everything just recently, changed the rules to make it easier for a governor to do this. So sometimes Democrats change the rules, and they're not happy when their own tactics then are used against them. But now Youngkin has this ability to say with a simple majority vote in both chambers, he can implement this legislation, which is requiring in-person instruction, virtual learning doesn't count, and, of course, allowing parents uh, mask-optional decision-making on on those issues. That would be implemented immediately. There would be no delay or wait for implementation. It would become the law in Virginia instantly if they get bare majorities, which is expected, in these two chambers down in Richmond. This is a huge Political win, and also I think a win for students and families in Virginia.
5: Yeah, I mean the governor was ambitious. He, he didn't just take the easy way out, which is to say the localities have the right to do it. He, he literally kept his uh, campaign pledge, and you know there's a risk to that because if he didn't succeed, and, and the executive order that he issued got the red, got the ball moving, it, it put this issue on the map, but it was being tied up in court with with different uh, you know litigation uh, underway. So. The fact that he actually on the legislative front got three state senators who were Democrats, including, uh, one of the the more experienced state senate Democrats from Fairfax County, from Northern Virginia, who was a big advocate for what Youngkin was doing and, and Chuck Peterson and to get that the bipartisan degree of support was a big I mean it's a big win whenever you say you're going to do something and then you get up the other side to, enough people on the other side to agree with you that, 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 that counts as political victory a major political victory no matter how you spin it um, and now he's like you said guy trying to goes back to the legislature to get the emergency provision allowing this this law to take place right away. So it's, it's a big first month for the governor, and it puts him on the map in a way that you don't see many Republican governors get that degree of attention. And, and,
0: and, well, and I so, think, and I've been saying and beating this drum now for a couple weeks, I think, at this point, the Republicans would be crazy <laughs> not to give Glenn Youngkin the State of the Union response and let him do it down in Richmond in front of a packed chamber and draw some very big I think, politically advantageous distinctions with the Democrats. And I don't know what their plan is. I don't think they've announced who's giving the response. But to me, this one is pretty low-hanging fruit, Josh. Yeah, the question
5: is, does he want to do the, the national audience for the response to the State of the Union? It would make a lot of sense. And I, I remember Bob McDonnell, the last Republican governor of Virginia, doing one of the, the responses uh, in front of a group of, of, of folks. Um, uh, but it would, it would, it would be, I mean, it's hard to do those, those responses, uh, the opposition responses to the state of the union. So it'll be interesting if he, he accepts, if he does, it does indicate. Well, if they they offer, and I hope they do to me, it's it's just,
0: it's a slam dunk. If they offer, I think he should take it. Josh, because you mentioned Florida and Ron DeSantis, I think it is worth pointing out DeSantis has dodged this question of whether or not he was personally boosted. We know he was fully vaccinated. He wouldn't answer whether he was boosted. Donald Trump has actually needled him for that, not by name, but saying sort of generically, oh, there are some gutless politicians out there who won't answer the question. Trump, of course, has said publicly that he did get boosted. He encourages people to get boosted. DeSantis is, I think, trying to figure out how to play that right now. I wish he would just tell the truth and give his reasons behind it. I think that's what has served him well in Florida in a lot of ways. That being said, he also has the results – To point to, when it comes to vaccines, he has the highest vaccination rate in the country of any state that Trump won in 2020. That's what they've achieved down in Florida. So, I mean, trying to call this guy anti-vax, I think, is a distortion unto itself. We're seeing that on the left. There's a new poll out just today. Mason Dixon. It is the second poll this month that has DeSantis up big in the governor's race down in Florida. He's plus 10 on favorability, which is also what we saw in the USA Today poll, leading by 8 to 11 points, similar to the USA Today poll, and a number that jumped out at me, majority favorability among Hispanics in Florida and 61% favorability among independents in Florida. I mean, five-point wins are like a landslide down in that state. If he wins in the upper single digits, I think that would be a statement, Josh.
5: Yeah, those numbers are good numbers, especially for a lightning rod like Governor DeSantis. His, his approval is 53%, disapproval 43%. you are 10 points over water. That, that, that any governor would take that in a heartbeat. Um, you know, I, I think that the the bigger question is, what do Democrats do when they look at the state of Florida? Do they spend the tens of millions of dollars in that Florida governor's race to try to bruise DeSantis Assuming that he may well be a strong candidate for, for president in, in 2024, and I mean that Florida is a tough state to play in. You either have to go all in and put all your chips on the table to take out a governor or a senator, or you just stay out of it entirely. It's hard to kind of go halfway in Florida, so it'll be really interesting to see what the Democrats do because they, DeSantis is their is their is their foil. Um, but his numbers are good, and it, it's a launch. This type of environment, with his degree of support in the state, it's going to be hard to take him out. So they, they're going to really have to strategize on what they want to, how they want to message against DeSantis, how aggressively they want to take him on. The way things are right now, he looks in, in really good shape for another. Yeah, because
0: if you go all in and spend all this money and still lose, maybe even relatively big, that's an embarrassment. If you pull out of the state, then you might allow or effectively pull out. You kind of let DeSantis maybe run up the score, Marco Rubio as well on the Senate side, and that is sort of an eye popping result. And if you try to split the difference, you end up spending a lot of money to really achieve nothing. So it's not an enviable position yep. for the Democrats in Florida right now. And part of that's because, you know, DeSantis has just done a good job and the people like him. Despite all of the craziness and the conspiracy theories and the endless attacks, at least for now, DeSantis is having the last laugh. We'll see if that lasts until November, but uh, he's very much in the driver's seat down there. Josh Kraussauer, we've got to leave it there for now, politics editor at National Journal, Fox News Radio political analyst. You can read his column, Against the Grain, at National Journal. Josh, always appreciate it.
5: Thanks, Guy. We'll talk to you soon.
0: We'll be right back. The
3: Guy Benson Show. More next.
0: Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Welcome back. We were just talking about Virginia and Glenn Young and his lieutenant governor, Winsome Sears, total badass. Yesterday, I guess someone had stolen or hidden her gavel when she was presiding over the Senate. because It's a split Senate if the Democrats lose just one vote. And so she had no gavel to bang the session to order. So she took off her high heel and used her shoe. She said, quote, one shoe can change your life. Just ask Cinderella. I love that power move there from Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears. I also love this from Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell talking about masks and schools and covid policy. This was from the floor yesterday. Cut 18.
4: American families deserve normalcy. They deserve it right now. And this side of the aisle, the party of parents has their back.
0: The party of parents, they should run with that. McConnell also said, the science has not changed. The political science has changed. The data has not changed. The polling data has changed. He's right on all counts. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this.
3: Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
0: It is the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Earlier today at the top of the program, we caught up with General Jack Keene about the situation in Ukraine, Russia's intentions all ahead of the president's speech. Here's part of that conversation with retired four-star General Jack Keene. What is your read on where things stand right now as we come on the air and as we await President Biden's comments later this hour?
4: Yeah, well, I, I do think... Uh... There is a diplomatic pathway that cert- certainly uh, Putin is willing to pr- proceed. We started to see that uh, yesterday as a result of the staged uh, TV uh, performance between the foreign minister and Putin. It's kind of bizarre, him reporting to him like he normally would do, but doing it on state television. And they opened up uh, the realistic fact that uh not all diplomacy has been exhausted, and um, Putin, President Putin, agreed with that. We have Putin today also uh, offering a diplomatic pathway forward as a result of his meeting with uh, Chancellor Schultz. So I, I think uh, while we always have to be skeptic, skeptical about the motivation here, and given the history of uh, Putin, um, it, it appears that there, at least for the near term, a pathway forward. Uh, diplomatically, uh, is ongoing. Whether that turns into uh, a realistic uh, cessation of this kind of aggression on Ukraine's border certainly remains to be seen. We also have to have a healthy dose of skepticism uh, about about all of that. Cyber attacks are underway. Um, We don't know how comprehensive they are yet. Uh, We do know the defense ministry has been hit and some form of the banking industry and we we do know that cyber attacks uh are either a prelude to uh an invasion or a military operation or at at a minimum at least a complementary to it um so yeah that's where we are the movement of the troops well hold on let me
0: me just ask you this before we make that point because i listened very carefully to what you were just saying and i hope you're right and i hope that maybe this is the russians blinking and saying, okay, do we really want to do this? Do we want to incur these casualties? Do we want to bring down the condemnation of the world on our heads? Do we want to have all these sanctions hit us and probably hit us pretty hard? Is it worth it? You know, maybe they're making the calculation that you know rattling the saber was enough and perhaps they can get a few concessions here or there and they can step back from the brink. Maybe, right? That is something that we can all be hopeful for. And we'll be monitoring President Biden at the bottom of the hour. He's supposed to speak. Not sure if he will bring any new news necessarily to the table, but uh, we'll be watching that here just if anything significant happens. But I have to ask you, General, just listening to that answer and thinking about the Russians, I don't trust them at all. That dog and pony show that you mentioned on state television was very bizarre and – Tell me – maybe this is a completely crazy thought that I had, but one place that my brain went was it was widely reported in the last, what, 24-plus hours that the Russians were likely to invade. You know, it could very much happen even this week during the Olympics. It could even happen specifically on Wednesday. That word went out. Could it be that the Russians had a plan in place to do exactly that, felt almost like they were getting preempted or scooped by the West – And now they are sort of engaged in a head fake to make it seem like they're not necessarily going to do this imminently when, in fact, that is their plan. And they want people to now take their eye off the ball and look elsewhere and maybe assume that diplomacy is underway so that they can then regain at least some element of surprise with an attack that they already had planned. I mean, is that conspiratorial of me? I just don't trust them at all.
4: No, I think uh, basic premise not to trust him is pretty damn sound. I mean, we can't. I mean, we've got a, a thug and a killer and a bull-faced liar running this country. Uh, so, yeah, we, we've got a lot of history with him for 20 years. And uh, certainly uh, his veracity is, is that that's already established. He's lacking it. But uh, some facts, though. I mean, the... Our government and I know from talking to senior Pentagon officials, they never said there was going to be an attack on Wednesday. That came out of a German, uh, a German newspaper, Der Spiegel, and it got picked up all around the world. An attack was coming on Wednesday, and even Zelensky, uh, uh, tongue in cheek, uh, said, "Well, if there's an attack coming on Wednesday, I'm going to have, uh, I'm going to have a unity day and bring the people into the streets to." To celebrate Ukraine, uh, w- which he, which he actually did, so that that got picked up uh, by a lot of media here, and and the the Pentagon never accepted that basic premise. What they and whether Wednesday it or out, not,
0: setting that aside, could this be a diplomatic head fake, and their actual internal planning hasn't really changed?
4: It could be. It could be, but you know, there's no surprise here when Putin starts to move. I mean, we'll have full visibility of all of that. I mean, it's you don't move forces around uh, on the scale that he would want to move them without us tracking it. If forces come across the border, we're going to see it. We've got plenty of imagery out there. We're eavesdropping on everything that's taken place as operational and tactical units. What we did have is some movement towards the border. That was indisputable. But what senior Pentagon officials who I was talking to said: "Listen, we don't have uh, an execute order, and that's a fact."
0: My full interview with General Jack Keane and the entirety of today's show available on demand for free, as always. GuyBensonShow.com, dot com, dot com, or wherever you get your podcasts. We do recommend that. Should you miss any part of the show as it airs, when we come back, the home stretch, the team goes around the horn. On our Valentine's Day, did it live up to low expectations for producer Christine? We'll ask her next.
3: For the full interview and more, go to guybensonshow.com.
0: Home stretch on this Tuesday on the Guy Benson Show, guybensonshow.com podcast always free always on demand. Well, yesterday was Valentine's Day. We talked a little bit about our plans in advance, not too much. But we should probably circle back and see how things went. Let's start with Dan, who had a date night planned with his girlfriend. Did it go well? Was the restaurant good? And how many times, Dan, did Christine badger you about a ring?
7: So it went very well. Um, We made reservations, but turns out we didn't need them. It wasn't very crowded at all. Um, Prices were fine. It was a very lovely dinner. We had a nice, quiet dinner by a little candlelight. It was fine. And no, I didn't get badgered until today about a ring from Christine. I came in, she's, yeah, she's like, have you been thinking about the ring or did you forget or what's going on there?
0: Does your girlfriend know that your colleague is constantly demanding that you propose? Absolutely no idea. Okay. That's probably for the best. Yes. Let's make sure we love everyone listening to the podcast, especially bonus Benson, all the home stretch, all the home stretches. Maybe we just keep this particular podcast away from this one woman, at least for now.
7: Yeah, I think she shouldn't listen to this one or a couple of them.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's probably the smart play at the moment. Meanwhile, Christine, I know you had basement expectations for your Valentine's Day because you were sort of uh, banging on Bobby for not liking to open the wallet on Valentine's Day. He thinks it's a ripoff, and I agree with him to a certain extent. How did everything end up going? Did you do anything?
2: So – I thought it was not going to be very eventful. I didn't realize it was going to be just, like, down and out bad. And uh, another person that I would like to not listen to, to the home stretch would oh, be but Bobby. Oh, does. I know. So uh, we have a, uh, you know, one of those home kits, you know, like for dinners that arrive every week. You get, like, oh, yeah, like three of or course. four meals. Yep. So ours usually comes on Sunday. It did not come. Then uh, Bobby goes, oh, we'll just have one of those on Monday. You know, I'll cook it up nice. It'll be... You know, little nice dinner. Okay, never came. So I just assumed when he was on the bus coming home from work, and it was my first day back from, you know, New York City commuting, I figured, oh, he'll just like, you know, order in some nice food and it'll be great. No, not only did he not order in, we did not have the home kit, we had nothing. And I wound up just making myself ramen and not even like good ramen, just like the one out of the packet. Oh, boy. Yeah, it was – and then I just looked at him and I'm like, I'm going to bed. I was just so angry. And then he came upstairs and he's like, what's the matter? And I said, I understand we are 10 years into this and I understand Valentine's Day is not that big of a deal. But this really stunk.
0: Yeah, making ramen for yourself is what a girl who just got dumped her freshman year of college does on Valentine's Day. Thank you.
2: Thank you for making it worse.
0: Well, I'm I'm actually just sort of agreeing with you. That's that's my spin on it. I'm agreeing with you.
2: Yeah. So. What did he say? Nothing much. He, oh well, if you want, you know, you can go to a spa if you want to like do something like that. But he didn't do it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, just give me the gift card or make the appointment. <laughs> Don't just say like, if you want to do this, like we can make that happen. So you know, but you have to like keep a... A good head about yourself because it really is for Megan. And Megan had a good Valentine's Day. So she was very excited. She said a, a boy for the first time asked her to be his girlfriend. We obviously told Megan she's not allowed to date. Whoa. Yes. And she, thank God she said, Mom, he's so annoying. Actually, Mom, all boys are annoying. So I think we're, we're lucky there. We're good.
0: Well, you're in the clear for a while, but she's eight. Yeah, but that's going to start to turn. That's going to start to turn at what, 11?
2: I don't know. Let me just tell you something. It seems to me, and I'm sure a lot of parents out there, it seems to me we're skipping a few years with girls especially. Like they're going from 8 to like 15 and forgetting all those years in between. I don't know what is happening. I'm seeing it a lot out there. (sighs) I'm not ready.
0: Well, it seems like you've got at least a little bit of a reprieve for now. But her first suitor who is, quote, annoying, you'd probably like him.
2: <laughs> I probably would. But, yes, <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, poor Dan, right when he came in today, first asked him about the dinner, and then immediately I zoned in right on the way, the ring. And I really went in, right, Dan? I, I was not letting up on this ring.
7: Yeah, she's like, you can go here to get this. This is the kind of cut she wants. You need clarity. You need size. Well, any of our
2: bosses
0: listening to this was like, Maria overhearing this, could this be an HR issue?
2: No, Dan and I were grabbing coffee, and then he he wasn't uh, sure where to go. So I actually allowed offered my services to help him actually find the ring. So we've we've got our work cut out for us.
0: <laughs> okay, yeah. We're, let's not make any big uh, commitments here on the radio show for the sake of the home stretch segment. Dan, just take your time, do it all offline. And there's a list of about a million people I would recommend before producer Christine for life advice. But I understand that you're now seeing her every day, so should face I, to face.
7: So should I not ask her how to propose? That's a bad oh, idea? Oh, no. <laughs> no, no.
0: You should ask me cause because my proposal story is amazing. Okay. And so that that is a story that I think I've told. I'm not sure if I told it on the air here, but yeah,
2: we Christine, you, did. you have to
0: admit. You have to admit my proposal story was A+. plus.
2: It was epic, and we definitely talked about that because that was during Benson and Harf days when you got engaged. That is true.
0: That and then is that's, true.
2: That's when we started planning, you know, yours and my wedding. It was amazing. Oh yeah, you
0: refer to it. You refer to it as our wedding.
2: Dan shaking oh, his head. Gosh.
0: Yeah, yeah. Dan, you should shake your head. You've missed a lot <laughs> since you just joined the show in the last couple of months. There's a whole history there, and you're slowly learning about it on a daily basis. So, welcome and congratulations. I would say our Valentine's Day was somewhere in between Dan's and Christine's. We didn't have big plans. Adam went over to the grocery store and picked up some food he cooked. I think he was a little underwhelmed by his own performance on a few of the side dishes, but the steaks that he grilled were really good. And because I'm trying to be a little bit better, I did not have wine with the steak, even though it would have been delicious. So we hung out and we chatted and we had a little dinner on the late side, but I had a lot of work to do yesterday. I ended up getting bumped From a special report, which you may have noticed, I was promoting it on the air. There was just a whole series of events. Sometimes it happens, it's live TV. So I got home a little bit later than I would have normally, but a little bit earlier than anticipated because of the change on the TV side. But I wanted to get a workout in, I had to do some work that I didn't get around to earlier. So it was a late dinner. And then what we ended up doing was watching, so this is a reality show that's been on for I mean, years, I think maybe decades now, we have never watched it. It's on CBS, The Amazing Race. Have you seen The Amazing Race, Christine?
2: I love The Amazing Race, and I love who's on The Amazing Race this year.
0: Yes, so this is why we're watching. I will openly say that when I don't know someone who's a contestant, I'm not sure I will watch again in the future, even though it's a cool concept in – it's neat, the things that they have them do. It's actually kind of stressful to watch. Like I, I feel myself getting stressed out and my blood pressure rising watching this show, even though that doesn't happen to me watching other stressful shows like the cooking competition shows. I can just chill even as the pressure ratchets up on those programs. Not The Amazing Race. I don't know what it is about the music or the editing, but you start getting into it, if you're unfamiliar, you can just you know Google it or look up the Wikipedia page. They have contestants, it's teams of two, and they go all over the world on what amounts to an elaborate international scavenger hunt requiring various tasks and challenges and all this stuff, and the winners at the end win a million bucks. And you can win money and prizes and trips along the way as well. So I believe they're currently in Corsica is the the current stage of the competition in this season. These are the first episodes I've ever watched of The Amazing Race. Although my buddy, very close friend of mine who lives in New Orleans, I'm actually going to see him this week when I go down there, he loves the show. He and his wife would excel on this show. He's the guy, I've mentioned him, he's been on the air actually. He wrote the children's book, he's been on Jeopardy, he's been on Millionaire, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? He, I think, should try out for The Amazing Race with his wife. They would be Excellent contestants, but they've got young kids, so maybe just wait. Seems like this show isn't going anywhere, it's a hit. Anyway, that's a long wind-up to the reveal. If you're not watching Amazing Race this season, you don't know that another previous guest on this program is one of the players, right? one of the guys as part of a team on the show this season, Ryan Ferguson. You might remember that interview. If you missed it, you should go back. Google it. My name and his name, Ryan Ferguson. The full hour from our podcast is a must listen. I had Ryan and his father on this show a couple months ago before the holidays-ish. Ryan was wrongfully convicted of murder. He was put in prison for a decade for a murder that he did not commit. He lost his entire 20s behind bars. Based on this wrongful conviction, there's a documentary about it on Netflix called Dream Killer. It is shocking. It is enraging. Anyway, he has sort of become a friend. And he's dating someone that we know because it's Adam's cousin. She works in our industry here. And because we were able to get him on the show and chat with his dad, we had dinner that night. He and his girlfriend came down for our Christmas party. We now kind of know him. He's a super nice guy. I mean, his attitude is amazing, given that he was robbed of some of the best years of his life. So he and one of his best friends are contestants on The Amazing Race. They are doing well. We are rooting for them. And so our big Valentine's Day was watching last week's episode on DVR because I was out of town. The new episode airs tomorrow night. So rooting for Ryan, of course, here on The Guy Benson Show. I am headed down to the Big Easy, as I just mentioned. The next few days we'll be broadcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana. We will talk to you then, same time, same place, The Guy Benson Show.